<laughs> She's biting at the bit. Uh, father was passing by his son's bedroom. He was astonished to see the bed was nicely made and everything was packed up. Saw an envelope propped up prominently on the pillow and it was addressed, Dad. With the worst premonition, he opened the envelope, read the letter with trembling hands. Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with Mom and you. I've been finding real passion with Stacy, and she's so nice, but I knew you would not approve of her because of her piercings, tattoos, tight motorcycle clothes, and because she is so much older than I am. But she's not the only passion, Dad. She's pregnant. Stacy said that we will be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. We share a dream of having many more children. Stacy has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. We'll be growing it for ourselves and trading it with other people in the commune for all the cocaine and ecstasy that we want. In the meantime, we'll pray that science will find a cure for AIDS so Stacy can get better. She sure deserves it. Don't worry, Dad. I'm 15. I know how to take care of myself, and someday I'm sure we'll be back to visit so you can get to know your many grandchildren. Love, your son Joshua. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Jason's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the school report that's on the kitchen table. Call when it's safe for me to come home. <laughs> marijuana exchange for all the cocaine and ecstasy we really I thought the AIDS part was really good. <laughs> okay, so we have a lot of scripture uh, to go over today, and uh, I think we'll be able to get through it all just fine. I'll keep an eye on the clock um, so that we're not getting out at three because Drina has a a house to have roofed. Um, but we're going to start with uh Hebrews uh, chapter 7, uh, 1 through 3. We're on our 20th lesson of Hebrews, number 20. And at this rate, it's probably going to be close to 40. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so uh, Paul in the Passion says, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He was also the king of peace because the name of the city he ruled as king was Salem, which means peace. And he was also a priest of the Most High God. Now when Abraham was returning from defeating many kings in battle, Melchizedek went out to meet him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of everything he had won in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. This Melchizedek has no father or mother and no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born and he never died. But his life is like a picture of the Son of God, a king priest forever. Okay, so we're going to dive into uh, Melchizedek. He's very important in a narrative for several reasons, which we'll get into. We'll also answer the question, the question of whether he was divine, if he was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus or not. Um, I studied it in depth, listened to hours of uh, teaching from Dr. Michael Heiser as well. And I find it's very interesting the Lord, you know, basically confirms what you're studying. You know, if you're on the right track, he'll confirm it. Uh, one thing that is very interesting is, and you might keep this in mind as we go through it, I'm a why person, so I like to know why God chose Canaan. 
why he chose Jerusalem. You know what I mean? Like there's always, like why? Out of all the places, out of all the cities, he chose those two. And I think it's tied to Melchizedek. And I thought that for a long time. In fact, when I was saying David's life, I was like, Lord, why did he? Why was Jerusalem so important? And uh, he said, because of Melchizedek and the Messiah. He was a prophetic picture, you know, of the Messiah. So uh, we'll get into that. But we're going to look at, and I forgot my ESV, so I'm going to read out of my notes. But Genesis 14, 11 through 16, and this is the story that Paul is referring to. And it says, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. The one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of uh, Mam- Mamre, or Mamre? Uh, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Aner. <laughs> um, anyway. Okay. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women of the people. And this is how Abram got involved in a war between kings, which then led him to Melchizedek. Okay, so first, I, I, one thing I love about Abram is he was an equipper and trainer because he, he trained an army of men in his house, you know, 318 of them. And uh, I was uh, starting an exercise this morning where I'm going through the book of Solomon, and I'm writing down the uh, pathway, the journey, because it's a very interesting picture of the Christian walk. And one of the things that I had forgotten is that the kisses, that word is naskal, I think, in the Hebrew. And it means uh, equipped and armed for battle. Kisses. So I thought that was very, very interesting. And so equipping and training, you know, if, uh, prophetically kisses represent the word. So Abram is an apostle. You know, if you think about it. And so he has his own private army. And then verse 17 through 21, it says, After his return from the defeat of Chertolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is, <coughs> the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out uh, bread and wine. Very interesting. Because that is a context of communion. Right. So there's a lot of prophetic there, Right. And so he was priest of God Most High, not any other God. So I'm, I'm at the mind of Heiser where like his name could be that he was the God of Sedek, but I believe that he was, based on obviously scripture, a priest of the Most High. So that sets our God apart from all the other gods as far as who Melchizedek served. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he, he recognizes Abram. Abram recognizes Melchizedek. 
So then Abram gives him a tenth or tithes, correct? Because that's the Hebrew word, to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, it's very interesting because this is a first place of com communion, a, a prophetic shadow shadowing. We know that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. That's what uh, Corinthians says. But we also see that tithe is pre-law. See that? So when people are like, well, we don't have to tithe. Well, no, you don't. And it's not uh, an obligation under the law to tithe. But it is a mark of loyalty to Jesus Christ above all <coughs> other gods. And so, uh, also, he doesn't have to rebuke the devourer for us. We rebuke the devourer now. Um, so anyway, he ties, it's pre-law, to the priests of God Most High. So I want to break down a few things. The first thing is Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, this is the proper name in the Hebrew of the king and high priest of Salem, which was later called Jerusalem. It means king of righteousness, or the king is righteous. He is the first king priest in the Bible. The other two were David and Jesus. He was a Canaanite who served the Lord. Yeah, he was Canaanite. I think that's why God picked Canaan. Because he served somehow. Somehow he found God. And he served him as king priest, pre-law. See, once the law got here, you couldn't combine king priest. Um, the priest had their job, the king had his job, and you see any kings that tried to intermingle those, that they either got leprosy or you know some crazy stuff, because it was a prophetic picture pre-law of the king priest who was to come, who would then make king priest. Okay? So... Well, that's what I said. David was a king priest. Right. He lived outside the law. Right. He brought the ark into mm -hmm. the presence. I mean, he, he lived by faith, so he lived outside the law. Now, of course, he didn't regularly commit priestly duties. I mean, he left that to the priest, uh, but he did the worship and institute all that, things like that. Okay, so Melchizedek was Canaanite, which then lets us know he was born. So he's human. Okay, so if you've wondered that your whole life, that answer is here. And, and we'll, we'll dive into that even more. Uh, okay, Salem. He was king of Salem, which is translated peace. It's an early reference to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was also called Jebus or Jabus at times. And it was inhabited by Jebusites until David, and he took the city from them after they taunted him, and said that their blind and lame would be able to fight off David and his mighty men. So that was a challenge to him. Uh, I personally believe that David took Jerusalem, number one, because he was led of Holy Spirit, and number two, because it was the city of Melchizedek. I've thought that for a long, long time, because you know that tradition, that story had been passed down. You know the Jewish people had to recognize there was something about Melchizedek, this mystery of Melchizedek. Why was he in the story? Why is there Psalm 110 that mentions one coming after the order of Melchizedek, right? So Melchizedek is above all things a type and a shadow of a king-priest order from which the Messiah would be a part of. Okay? 
uh, let's see, the uh, meaning of Jerusalem is the city of peace or the height or foundation of peace in the Hebrew. And then Zion means permanent capital. So Zion is a mountain in Jerusalem. It's the highest elevation and it's considered the permanent capital of the Lord. You can live in Jerusalem but not dwell in Zion. But if you dwell in Zion, then you live in Jerusalem or peace. In other words, if you're a worshiper, you live in both worlds. Okay? Bread and wine. Now, this was a common practice back then to refresh others. You know, he'd just come back from battle with the spoils. Um, especially, you know, when you're coming back from ba uh, battle. And if you look at the word bread, it can be any food, actually. So we don't know if he gave him actual bread or if he gave him just some type of food. But I can't help, again, but see communion here. You know what I mean? And, uh, and then priest is Cohen in the Greek or in the Hebrew. So it is the word for priest. And then tenth. So this is the Hebrew word of what became known as a tithe. The fact that Abraham tithed to him reveals Melchizedek's superiority over Abram. Okay? Listen to this quote from Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. That the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to that of Aaron in the Levitical priesthood is then demonstrated. Why? Because Abraham tithed to him. Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, the father of Levi, because Melchizedek gave gifts to and blessed Abraham and then received tithes from him. Now, what is Paul doing with the Hebrews in this letter? He is pointing out the superiority of this new covenant. He's pointing out how superior Jesus Christ is, his priesthood, him as king, over the Levitical priesthood, because remember, they wanted to go back to escape corruption, okay? So he's pulling from the Old Testament all these things to show that for you to turn away from Jesus back to the law, if you're going back to an inferior covenant, and it doesn't make any sense. So a people that are uh, obeying the law need to hear that loud and clear. Okay, the only other place Melchizedek is mentioned is in Psalm 110 where David prophetically establishes the priestly order of Melchizedek as the order of the coming Messiah. Okay, so we're going to read it in its entirety. It's one of my favorite psalms. It has uh, a, it, you know, application for us today as well as in the future. Set at my right hand, well, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Okay, now, the city of David was Zion. It encompassed a, a part of Zion. Zion was in there. The tabernacle of David was located in Zion. So, God is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. Right? According to Acts 15. So, it's from Zion that he's going to send his mighty scepter so that Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Now, how's that happening? Any thoughts? <laughs> Guys, y'all got to know, I've been teaching this stuff for years and years and years. Years. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies from Zion through us. Okay? So, 
part of our job, part of our mandate, is to, to subdue his enemies. The way you do that is you take cities, counties, and states, right? So that's like Paul. All of Asia heard the word of the Lord. By the end of the Roman persecution, half of the Roman Empire was born again, spirit-filled. And so he, let's look at Acts, uh, I think it's 3.15, and it's not in your notes, but this is a very important scripture for the body of Christ. It's one of uh, Peter's first sermons. a way to have that in auto or not, but okay, so let me find it here okay, I think it begins in 18, which is kind of interesting Acts 3.18 and Abraham had 318 soldiers, but in spite of what you've done, what you've done God has fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets long ago about the suffering of his anointed one and now you must repent and turn back to God so that your sins will be removed and so that times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence and he will send you Jesus the Messiah the chosen one for you for verse 21 he must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things has taken place fulfilling everything God said long ago through his holy prophets. Okay? So Jesus will remain up there until the restoration of all things. Well then... Huh? Uh, 3, 18 through 21. And then if you go over to 1 Corinthians 15, and then we're going to look at... starting verse 24... So it's talking about, you know, the resurrection of the dead and the uh, transformation of those that are alive, um, how that's going to happen. And then it says, then the final stage of completion comes when he will bring an end uh, to every rulership, authority, and power. And he will hand over his kingdom to Father God. Until then, he is destined to reign as king until all hostility has been subdued and placed under his feet. Okay? And the last enemy to be subdued and eliminated is death itself. So, basically what that's saying is that the time of completion or the restoration of all things is not going to happen until his enemies have been subdued. The way he's subduing his enemies is supposed to be through the church. The ecclesia. Which is why reducing Christianity to a meeting on Sunday, a meeting on Wednesday, even a meeting on Friday is stupid. That's not what it's for. It's not to go to a meeting. It's to knit hearts together with a common purpose and sphere of authority and dominion that then gets the plan from God and executes it in their city, right? Or whatever the sphere is. It may go beyond the city, but you know what I mean. So there's the practical, the supernatural, etc. So he's not going to return until we make his enemies his footstool. Interesting, huh? 
that's a whole different picture than most eschatology. Have y'all noticed that? How are you supposed to subdue the, uh, his enemies if the Antichrist wipes out the entire Christian race? So the Antichrist is not, and I repeat, is not going to have authority over every single country. Right. Now, we may come down to city to city. We may come down county to county. You know what I mean? Like, it may get down to that. But there are always going to be pockets of God's people. And we're going to subdue nations. The Antichrist is insignificant. He only has three and a half years. He's a blip on the radar screen. Okay? Is that interesting? So our job is to subdue as much as we can before all of a sudden it's time. And then the Antichrist comes on the scene. Okay? All right. Now, verse 3, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn. Now, when you see Lord in caps, it's Yahweh. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. What that's describing is when the Lord comes back, He's going to basically be killing off all of His enemies. Uh, His robes will come up to uh, the blood, will come up to the bridle of His horse. So His robe's going to be dipped. Like he's gone through a wine press and he's going to need refreshing by a brook. So he'll scoop down and drink. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so the first Lord where it says, Then the Lord said to my Lord, That Lord is Yahweh, the most sacred name of God. The second Lord is Adon, and it means Lord or Master. Now, it can be used to refer to like human lords, you know, masters and things like that. But it also can be used to refer to a divinity, someone that's divine. Uh, quote, it carries the nuances of authority rather than ownership. Okay? Meaning, as one to whom authority belongs, not to one who owns humans. That's what Lord means. So when you see the word Lord, don't think about it in a pre-saved mindset as someone that owns you. When you think of Lord, it is one who has authority whose right it is, okay? And so we submit to his authority because he's the one that possesses it, and smart people submit themselves to that authority, okay? Now, uh, when it's used to refer to divinity, it often refers or occurs with Yahweh, okay, signifying his sovereignty. By the way, his sovereignty is not that he's in control. It's that he's in charge. This is God speaking to God so God speaking to the Word in heaven before the Word became flesh. They had that discussion. He's like, okay, this is what I need you to do. And you're going to be after the order of Melchizedek, right? Okay, now, in Genesis 49.10, it's one of my favorite verses concerning his kingship and his rule. I'm going to read it from the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, so Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now let me read it to you in the New King James because there's an important word here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah. What was he? A lion, right? Nor a lawgiver from between his feet or king until Shiloh comes. Into him shall be the obedience of the people. Now tribute is actually a proper name. I didn't know that. Well, a tribute in uh, Roman times was an office, wasn't it? Yeah, and then also you give tribute, you know, uh, money, you know, uh, honor, submission. Okay, but Shiloh in this context means he whose it is. And it also means peace. What is he? Prince of Peace, right? Uh, so Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness of the tribe of Judah. Now, Obedience to the peoples is literally obedience of the nations or ethnicities. Now, this isn't him taking ownership of people like slave owners. This is him extending an invitation to others to follow him, to submit to him as Lord, recognizing his authority, but also having a relationship as described in the Song of Songs. Uh, so it's not a forced thing. Uh, but those that refuse to believe will be wiped out. Well, let me phrase it this way. When he returns, there will be people alive that have not followed him. But those that align with the Antichrist, he's going to kill. Okay? All right, now, according, now get this, this is crazy, to the original language of Psalm 110, Jesus is a ruler, warlord, and priest. Wow. Do you know the Lord of Hosts is used more than any other name? The Lord of Armies? He's a warrior. Okay. Psalm 110 tells us that Yahweh swore or took an oath, and that should be familiar to us in our study. Remember, he swore by himself that the Lord is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Priest is Cohen, like we talked about above. The Messiah is according to this order, not Levi. And herein lies the crux of Paul's argument that the new covenant, the new high priest, and the new priestly order of Jesus Christ is far superior to Levi. So let's look at verse 3 again where it says, This Melchizedek has no father or mother and no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born, he never died, but his life is like a picture of the Son of God, a king priest forever. Now you might be like, wait a minute, it says that he was never born and he never died. That's almost like an idiom. So it's not saying he wasn't born physically, and it's not saying he didn't die physically. But what it is, is that there was no genealogy recorded. Okay? There was no source. They couldn't trace his family line. There was no family line after, which means maybe he wasn't uh, married. Maybe He maybe didn't have children. So that's literally what it means, but it can sound like he had no beginning, no end. In other words, he was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. So as a, a, a rabbi, and in the original language, he just didn't have a genealogy that they could point to. <coughs> but it's recorded how old he was, too, isn't it? Scripture says how old he was. It doesn't? Yeah, it says Methuselah, but not Melchizedek. Oh. Methuselah. No. Mm-mm. Is it? 
Zip zero, nada. Yeah. Okay, so that's what that means. So Paul's saying there's no record of his genealogy, his beginning and his end, making him a type of the Son of God, but not the Son of Man. So Mel in other words, Melchizedek showed up out of nowhere. Okay? He was a follower of the God Most High, a Canaanite in Jerusalem. And because he loved Jesus, God said, okay, of all the places I can pick to give to my people, it's going to be here. Isn't that interesting? And I think it's also interesting that the enemy had giants in the land. He knew Canaan was special. Yeah. Okay. So Abraham acknowledged his worship of their God, tithed to him as a superior, and like David established the throne that Jesus sits on, Melchizedek established the priesthood that Jesus is after. Now, the word resembling, he resembles the Son of Man in the English Standard Version, is a word that means to be like or similar to someone else. Okay? So similar, to be like. It's not the, the same. Okay, it's like a facsimile. So that tells me that Mel was not a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Okay? Uh, do you like how I shorten his name? <laughs> okay, so just the, the phrase, resembling the, resembling the Son of God, suggests he was not himself the Son of God. And it's through David's prophecy that Jesus would be according to the order, order of Melchizedek that Holy Spirit tied Jesus' priesthood to him. Now, let's... Uh, and here's the thing, too. As far as where it says he has no record of his ancestors, etc., but his life is like a picture of the Son of God, a king priest forever. Here's why it says that. Because he was a priest because God said so. Right? It, there was no hereditary passing down. There was no Aaron's sons taking it over. And you had to be of the tribe of <coughs> Levi, etc., etc. Melchizedek was priest because God made him priest. Jesus is priest because he was made priest, right? So it's the same idea. And I thought it was interesting that Melchizedek came, went out to meet Abraham. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, that's, I think, the way God is. He will come out to meet us mm -hmm. before we ever know. Well, we know that Abraham was drawing near, too, but yes, absolutely. It was a divine <coughs> appointment. You know, there was something going on. And uh, so let's, we're going to read um, several scriptures here, uh, Hebrews 7, 4 through 12 in the Passion Translation. Now let me show you proof of how great this Melchizedek is. Number one, even though Abraham was the most honored and favored part, patriarch of all God's chosen ones, he gave a tithe of the spoils of battle to Melchizedek. It would be understandable if Melchizedek had been a Jewish priest, for later on God's people were required by law to support their priests financially, because their priests were their relatives and Abraham's descendants. But Melchizedek was not Abraham's Jewish relative, and yet Abraham still paid him a tithe. So the implication is Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, therefore we pay our tithes to him. Number one, Melchizedek imparted a blessing on mighty Abraham who had received the promises of God, and no one could deny the fact that the one who has the power to impart a blessing is superior to the one who receives it. Number three, Although the Jewish priests received tithes, they all died. They were immortal. But Melchizedek lives on. Now what is he saying? See, again, people get confused. Like, well, right there, right there, that's 
That's proof that he's still alive. He has to be Jesus. No, he has no end. There's no record of his end. Jesus is of that order. So, that order continues on. Jesus Christ is the high priest of that order. Therefore, Melchizedek, in a sense, lives on. Well, and what think, he started. I think even... Oh. Um, you know, we have that uh, wow. That same analogy where every every believer is, is their is the high priest basically, and whoever you impart part to, whoever you bless, whoever you give the good word to, lives on. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way, because of Melchizedek's blessings that we've received mm-hmm. um, in the form of Jesus has lived on is never ending it's internal and what I think is interesting like when Melchizedek did die it was obviously before the Lord became a man and it's like I'm what you know like what discussions do they have you know and then when he became a man you know it's like I wonder you know what he was thinking and anyway <laughs> I always wonder that stuff that's why I can't sleep past eight okay so uh, number four it could even be said that Levi, the ancestor of every Jewish priest who received tithes, actually paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. For although Levi was yet unborn, the seed from which Levi came was present in Abraham when he paid his tithe to Melchizedek. Number five, if any of the Levitical priests who served under the law had the power to bring us into perfection, very important point right there, then why did God send Christ as priest after the likeness of Melchizedek. He should have said after the likeness of Aaron. Let me read that, that first sentence again. If any of the Levitical priests who served under the Mosaic law had the power to bring us into perfection, then why did God send Christ as priest after the likeness of Melchizedek? In other words, the law does not make you righteous. And to go back to it, which we'll get into, is to fall from grace. And then the final one is furthermore, for God to send a new and different rank of priests meant a new law would have to be instituted even to allow it. And what was that? The law of love. Or a new covenant too, which we'll dive into a little bit. Okay, so I want to tap into this Hebrew 711. <laughs> In the English Standard Version. That's funny. Okay, so... <laughs> Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Okay, so again, the tithe of the priesthood, it's fascinating, was established before the law of Moses. Abram's tithe was an acknowledgement of Melchizedek's superiority. Our tithe is an acknowledgement of Christ's superiority. Okay? The Melchizedek priesthood is therefore a, uh, superior to the Levitical priesthood because Levi was in the loins of Abraham, but also because another priest wouldn't have had to arise after the order of Le- the Levitical priesthood um, if they had been able to bring perfection. Now, the word perfection literally means to make perfect in a moral sense. Okay? And it's also the act of completion. Successful effort or fulfillment, the state or attainment of perfection. The only way we are made perfect in a moral sense is by by receiving 
Jesus Christ's nature when we're born again. That's it. So this ties back to what we studied, what, last week, or, well, not last week, but maybe two or three weeks ago, about the revelation of righteousness piercing our hearts. Okay? It's never the law. It will never be the law. You cannot go back to the law. And it's stupid for Gentiles who aren't Jewish to do it anyway. It, was, it wasn't written to us. Right? So, righteousness is not an activity. It's a state of being. And if Christians got this, man, we'd, we'd, we would hasten in the coming of the Lord. Okay, we have been made God, God's righteousness, and our activity follows our being only if we believe it. So this also implies that God's plan has always been to make us perfect. You know, post-fall. Okay, so a new law had to be instituted to allow this new priesthood. What does this mean? Well, God had to become man in order to fulfill all the aspects of Moses' law, right? He could not break a single jot or tittle of Moses' law. He had to fulfill all of them. Now, it doesn't mean, however, that he had to fulfill all the extra laws that the Pharisees added <coughs> So if, if they said he broke any law, he broke their law, not God's law. Okay? So he also had to be hanged on a tree to become a curse for us. Because curse is uh, the man who hangs on a tree. He had to become sin for us, and he uh, had to die. Because the only way to free someone from an old covenant is that the author of that covenant must die. Now, the implications of that are incredible. So, God entered into a covenant with Moses, gave him the law. Therefore, God had to die in order to nullify that old covenant. Now, we know, of course, that God didn't die, but Jesus Christ did, <coughs> who is the God-man, right? So, then, he had to be resurrected from the dead in order to impart to those who believe his very own nature that is designed to overtake all the aspects of body, soul, and spirit. So we've been freed from the law of sin and death and made alive to the law of life and liberty. Now, the only laws that we're to observe is to love God with all of our being, ourselves, and then our neighbors. So, this is why it is actually a misguided delusion to observe, observe the law of Moses as if Christ hasn't come. It's also delusion to add following the law to your faith because there's no such thing. You're just going back under the curse. You know, when people follow the law, that's what's happening. They're going back under the curse. Okay, Paul's writing to the Hebrews who are thinking of returning to the Mosaic law, and he's telling them it's absolutely inferior to the new law and priesthood that Christ instituted. Now, here's an interesting side note. Just as Abraham was called by God to leave his land and came to know him through his voice, so did the Canaanite king priest Melchizedek. And I wonder if they had a discussion then. I know that at this point, Abram knew he was going to have Canaan. Because remember, him and Lot separated, and then Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Cain, uh, Abram picked what was left, you know, the, the leftovers. And so then you find a priest of the Most High God and a king. I bet Abraham was shocked. You know what I mean? Like, I bet he was like, what? This is confirmation. What? 
You know what I mean? <coughs> and so all of it would have tied together. So it kind of makes me wonder what discussions they had as yeah, they sat and talked at, about it. At this point, Abraham thinks he's the only mm -hmm. believer of his kind. Don't mm -hmm. put it that way. Because Lot's gone his way. And, right. You know, his other relatives that he's left. And, um, yeah, it, it had to be, man, refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's finish up. Uh, verse 13 through uh, 17, the Passion. Yet the one these things all point to was from a different tribe. And no one from that tribe ever officiated at God's altar. For we all know that our Lord didn't descend from the tribe of Levi, but shined from the tribe of Judah. And Moses himself never said anything of a priest in connection with Judah's tribe. And all this is made even clearer if there was another king priest raised up with the rank of Melchizedek. This king priest did not arise because of a geneolo genealogical... Genealogical. Genealogical. <laughs> 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 right, under the law to be priest. In other words, Jesus, he wasn't you know, going to be a priest because of bloodline. Uh, but by the power of an indestructible resurrection life. So this priesthood is based on that. For it says in the Psalms, you are like Melchizedek, a king priest forever. The old order of priesthood has been set aside as weak and powerless, for the law has never made anyone perfect. He's, he's emphasizing it again and again and again. But in its place is a far better hope, which gives us confidence to experience intimacy with God. And he confirmed it to us with his solemn vow. For the former priests took their office without an oath, but with Jesus, God affirmed his royal priesthood with this promise, saying, The Lord has made a solemn oath and will never change his mind. You are a king priest forever. Okay? All right, now, 15 through 17 in the English Standard, I want to read that. It says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, it's witness you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, there was no record of his death. Okay? So this lack of record is for Paul a foreshadowing of Jesus, who, like Melchizedek, isn't a high priest based on any legal requirement or bloodline, but instead by the dunamis of a life that cannot cease. Isn't that interesting? All right, I don't know why I have verses 18 through 21 in here again. But I just want to point out, the laws never made anyone perfect. It never has, it never will. Okay, so following it's futile. The real power, the power of perfection, is found in the power of Jesus Christ. But Paul also reveals, I don't know if you guys caught this, that the law of Moses can never give us the confidence needed to experience intimacy with God, which is what God wanted the whole time. He brought them out of Egypt to Himself. And their first opportunity, they're like, oh no, uh-uh, Moses, you go up there, we'll stay down here. Right? That was His whole intent. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Did y'all notice that? Only one tribe. They were allowed to be the priests. Why? The golden calf. Did y'all see that? You have His good, His permissive, and His perfect will. All of the Israelites were supposed <coughs> to be priests. And Levi was the only one that didn't partake, and therefore he said, you'll be my priesthood. 
It's interesting. And they refused to even look on the glory that Moses was going to impart right. on them. Right. Yeah. You know, wear the veil. We can, we don't even want to look at the glory. Yeah. So he brought them to himself, the intimacy. Um, they didn't want it. He wanted them all to be uh, priests. They didn't want that either. They followed the calf. And then there's something about that um, Heiser brought up that I can't remember, but it was about how Moses, because he refused to have confidence in God uh, over his stuttering and stuff, that he gave it over to Aaron. Um, there's something tied into that, too, that caused God to have to adjust his plans. And so I don't want him to have to adjust his plans. There's no telling how many plans he's had to adjust because I've been a stinker. <laughs> okay, so the only way to be intimate, to fill that with God, is to be joined uh, to Him in Jesus Christ. And so God swore an oath to the Word. Remember, my, the Lord said to my Lord, He swore an <coughs> oath to the Word, where former priests didn't have to do that. So all of this, verse 22, magnifies the truth that we have a superior covenant with God than what they experienced. For Jesus Himself is its guarantor. Is that how you say it? Guarantor? As additional proof, we know that there were many priests in the old system, for they eventually died and their office had to be filled by another. But Jesus permanently holds his priestly office since he lives forever and will never have a successor. Okay? Now, I love uh, the Aramaic of this phrase for Jesus himself is a guarantor. It's literally through which we gained Christ. That's what it literally means in the Aramaic. So where other priests have died, Jesus will never die. He's forever and always a true uh, king priest. So we have uh, been able to gain Christ because of that. Okay. So he is able to save fully from now throughout eternity. Everyone who comes to God through him. Because he lives to pray continually for them. He is the high priest who perfectly fits our need. Holy. Without a trace of evil. Without the ability to deceive. Incapable of sin. And exalted above the heavens and the word eternity uh, that he's a he's able to save into the always okay and then his biography which is the word lives to where it says lives to that's biography biography in the greek and uh, it's to speak to someone on behalf of someone else in other words his blood is always speaking on our behalf always that's why if you talk to him about something you've done wrong the blood speaks louder and it cleanses us unlike the former high priest he's not compelled to offer daily sacrifices they had to bring a sacrifice first for their own sins then for the sins of the people but he finished the sacrificial system once and for all when he offered himself the law appointed flawed men as high priests but God's promise sealed with his oath which succeeded the law appoints a perfect son who is complete forever isn't that neat okay and um, we might talk a little bit more about Melchizedek and some of those, but I think that kind of, like, you know, makes it plain. Um, types and shadows. We know that anytime the angel of the Lord is used uh, in the Old Testament, it's uh, referring to a pre-incarnate form of the Lord. Because angel is a function. It's a messenger. It's not a being. So whenever it says angel of the Lord, it's messenger of the Lord. Uh, Abraham fed him when they were on their way to judge Solomon and Gomorrah. Um, uh, he was the captain of the army of hosts that Joshua encountered. Uh, he was one of, one of them that um, Daniel encountered in his visions. Um, so there's just uh, lots of theophanies in the Old Testament, right? Melchizedek was not one. 
So, does that answer that question, or do you have more or thoughts? Uh, I have an agreement because a lot of the Old Testament will give you a lot of lineage based on the begats. Of yes. Oh yeah. And there's no begats. That would be no be and no beginning since there was no record recorded. Right. That, no, whoever's father was. Yeah. Never was recorded. Yeah. Right. And uh, I. I think Heiser mentioned that there were other historical records that actually mentioned the king of Salem, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. in the teachings. Joe, 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 I can't even say that. Joe, hey, it's did okay. Joe say anything? Did Joe say anything about Josephus? I don't know. Did Joe see? I think he might have talked about a bio. This is Bill, and that's Joe. I haven't been able to talk since I got back from Arizona. Yeah. Well, one thing that right off the bat that kind of stood out to me was the, when that uh, Abraham had his servants also as his army. Yes. And so it tells you that, we'll say it was marketplace. Mm -hmm. They weren't soldiers and they weren't only servants. Right. That they were that servant. Soldier. Soldier. So it's warrior. Mm -hmm. and, that changed uh, nation. That's right. And, yeah. Um, but they could do both. Yeah. I think a lot of times um, we as Christians think you have to be sold out on one or the other. Right. But, you know, that's there's just no, an example. There's no line. Yeah. And, and he saw the importance of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no division between marketplace minister or uh, minister, minister. Uh, I lost my was, word. If, if, Mel, if Mel, when he did die, mm -hmm. went to paradise, he could not wait until Jesus showed up. I said, bet. Let's get out of here. Yeah, he was part of the uh, yeah. the, the resurrection. So, yeah, so yeah. just can only imagine. Which I think is fascinating. Only imagine those 40 days. That an order, a priesthood order, was from a Canaanite. Because the Lord has always been after nations. You know, the Israelites were a vehicle. They were supposed to deliver the kingdom, but they didn't. They became inward. Sound familiar? They became inward. And so what happened is, you know, it's like out of everybody, you know, he began to woo. He had to woo Melchizedek. He, you know, he didn't just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to serve you. He had to woo him just like he did Abram. Abraham is the beginning of the Hebrews. And so we see in a Canaanite, a non-Hebrew, God established his priesthood. Well, that, and there was Rahab. Right. The prostitute, uh, the genealogy. Ruth. You know, it's all these different ones that were not... Now, Kathy. Uh, you know. Kathy. They were not the <laughs> accepted type people. You have to be politically correct. Yes. It's sex worker. Sex worker. <laughs> she was a sex worker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, as they said back in those days, she was a priestess. Because right. they, that's the way they worshipped. So. Right. There's not supposed to be priestess. anything good come from Nazareth. Jesus came out of Nazareth. Well, what was Canaanites? Anything good come out? Yeah, right. something good came out. And then not only that, but women are the ones that ate, took the first bite, and yet through a woman, he brought redemption to the world. You know, it's every... Every area of fall, he will redeem and use. He, he always gives us another opportunity. 
you know, to be part of the redemptive story. It's amazing. That's his heart. That's how he is. Uh, to finish, and we'll pray because we already got our type done, but I'll, um, I was telling this lady who was basically rejected and thrown away as a piece of trash by her ex-husband. And uh, I said, what I would like you to do is ponder redemptive realities. And here's what you got to understand. Uh, and this may offend some, but I really don't care. The Lord, like His, Jesus existed as a man because God was obsessed with us. Because we, like we didn't even like Him, and it didn't, it didn't sway Him. He, He was obsessed. And if you look at some of the original language, Rick Renner brought this out. The love He has for us drove Him to do insane things and one of them I was telling her was to forever change his form God forever changed his form he's now forever God man in Jesus he's never going to go back he can't go back to pre-man it's forever and so I told her I said that's your value you know when you think about how he was obsessed with rescuing us when we did not like him, it's an incredible picture of uh, redemption realities. You know? Yeah, yeah, the links. I mean, and then when you think about how he puts you together with certain people and orchestrates certain events, and he does all of these things, uh, it's just incredible. But yeah, he was love sick. He was love drunk for us. And that can also, I mean, he still is, but that's why he could say, Love your enemies. Because he did. To the full extreme. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you went to such extremes to uh, basically invite us into a relationship and an intimacy with you. Even when we didn't like you, even when some of us even had a hatred for you before we were born again, you had determined that Jesus Christ was going to come into the earth, God would become man. That's why it's such an important doctrinal point is that God became man because that is what secured our salvation, our redemption, and we're very grateful for that. And then on top of that, you freed us from the law, you freed us from the curse of the law, you freed us from the curse of the fall, and then you sent us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, as we worship you this morning, we ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Ghost. We ask for renewed energy into our bodies because all, all of us are involved in some way or another with spring cleaning projects, moving projects, work projects, uh, getting over, you know, uh, health issues. And so we just ask for a fresh feeling and the energy that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, we love you. And we are so thankful that you have uh, intricately overseen and put in place uh, extravagant and intricate details to where the whole story of Canaan and Canaanite and Jerusalem and Melchizedek and Jesus and Aaron and Moses and the law and all that stuff, everything was so intricately put together that it's actually mind-boggling everything you've done. And we know that you're still doing that. And your word says that Jesus is not returning till his enemies are his footstool. Father, I feel that you have passed the baton to us and it's time to run and capture nations. And so, Father, I ask that you help us to do that with the supernatural power of God 
with the divine wisdom that comes from Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ has been made the righteousness of God and the wisdom of God on our behalf. But I ask, Father, that you help us finish the race well. That, that's, that's what I want. I want you to not have to adapt your plans, but instead you tell us to do something. We say, yes, sir, and then we follow your instructions. So help us to live within the divine path, the perfect will of God that you've established for us. Help us to get back on track if any of us are off track. Help us to not wonder, but to stay attentive to your voice and stay on the path that you have given for us, each one of us as individuals and as a group. And Father, we give you honor, we give you glory this morning. We've given our tithes to you because we are loyal to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. I ask that you anoint our worship this morning. And I ask that you speak to us prophetically as individuals and as a group. Show us what's going on in heaven. Show us what's going on in the room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Oh.